Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the chance to gather together on a Sunday and remember the needs of this body in prayer and in fellowship. Thank you, Father, that we've had the chance to lift up men like Rick and others in the mission field and elsewhere who are feeling the need for your strength in their lives to heal them, to clear roadblocks, to sustain them, encourage them, to show them that you are at work. Thank you, Father, that we can join in a small way through prayer in that endeavor. And I thank you, Father, for the service of those who come into this building to give their gifts to the needs of the body, from those who worshiped to those who taught to those who did service in the the facility and in other ways, to all the ways in which you have equipped us so that we may build each other up for the work of ministry. We thank you, Father, that we have that attitude and that we have that focus as we gather, that it is not a show, that it is not a performance, it is not for entertainment. We come here, Father, for the serious business of preparing to serve you in the days we've been given. And we know, Father, that the study of your word is at the center of all that you would call us to do. For without knowledge, Father, we would only be zealous. For without the guidance of your word, Father, we would only have energy and nowhere to apply it. But you've given us the structure and the path and the purpose, and we ask, Father, that you clarify those things even more today as we study your word. And I pray this, knowing the Spirit is at work, and we yield to his insight and to his power in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You all have probably seen the bumper sticker that says, as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in school, something like that. Tests are moments of truth, as people say. Students can make all of the claims that they want about what they know prior to taking a test. But in the end, the truth comes out when the test is administered. Tests are designed for that reason, to reveal the truth about someone's accomplishments. Well, except in the case of the Aggie, who tried taking a, a true-false final exam by flipping a coin to get the answers, and after every flip, he would record true for heads or tails would mean false. And he finished the exam in record time, of course, and everything was going great until he decided to flip the coin again to go back through and check his answers. <laughs> tests don't stop, by the way, when you graduate from school either. They're not the end of the road for tests. Many professions have competency exams, have some kind of qualifying or certifying exam, And you take tests for other things like driver's licenses, citizenship tests. You get promoted at work sometimes, you have to take a test. All of those tests, though, serve the same purpose. They all exist to reveal the truth of our accomplishments. When you do well on a test, then you'll have good reason to feel good about yourself and about your accomplishments. And if you score poorly, well, then you suffer the consequences. Men like to boast about themselves often before the test comes. Like a sports team, for example, before a big game, talking up what they're going to do when the day comes. But the truth, the truth is revealed when the test is applied. And then we see, was the boasting accurate? Only those who perform well after the test is applied get the chance to continue in the boasting. The Corinthian church, as you know from our earlier studies in this book, have been boasting a lot, according to Paul. They were boasting about things that they had no reason To boast about. They were boasting specifically over how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They boasted about which apostle showed up and delivered the truth of the gospel. And Paul explained that such things are not eligible for boasting because they are the work of God alone, not of men. 
They came to faith as a result, not of the eloquence of Paul or Apollos, not because of their intellect and their ability to rationally determine truth. They came to faith, Paul says, by the power of God. In the same way that a fan of a sports team has no business boasting about that team's success on the field, for they had nothing to do with it. Likewise, we are simply the recipients of good outcomes, which God himself does in his own power. For us in faith, we are the recipients of the work of Christ on the cross and the work of the spirit to bring us the truth of that message. Last time we studied in this book, two weeks ago, we heard Paul telling the church that the boasting that they were doing about things they had no business boasting about was evidence of their spiritual immaturity. They were thinking like fleshly men, not like spiritual men. They were still thinking in the way the world thinks, which is that their own accomplishments are the result of their own abilities. Instead, he says, you should be thinking with the wisdom of God. Now, what's ironic about this is that while the Corinthians were busy boasting about things that they had nothing to do with, they were oblivious to a coming test that is going to reveal what they have done. This is a test that comes for these believers. In fact, this is a test that comes for all believers. Everyone in here who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ has signed up for a test. And that test is going to put to rest any boasting. It's going to reveal the truth. And if you understand that this test is coming, then you will begin to prepare. So Paul wants this church to know, he wants us to know, that we should cease boasting about useless things, about things that we have absolutely nothing to do with. We should redirect all that energy toward healthy spiritual wisdom concerning a test that is planned for each of us. We pick up where we left off in chapter 3, verse 5 this morning. Paul begins with questions. And he asks the church, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Paul Ask the church, what is Apollos? We might have asked it differently. We would have said, who? Who is Apollos? But Paul's point is not to the person. Paul's point is to the role. What do I make of the role that Apollos played? What do I make of Paul's role? Now, the church in Corinth had assigned to these men, to their roles, certain value. And then, by association, they had claimed some of that value for themselves. Men do this all the time, right? I'm better because I'm a UT grad. I'm better because I'm a UT fan. I'm better because I happen to go to a UT game. I mean, to the extent we try to make any association, there's something good about us. Or at least that's how people in Austin might think. In Corinth, if Apollos was, here's the logic in a Corinth, if Apollos was a great man, and self-evidently he was doing great things, then the fact that he was the one who converted me to Christianity, or the one who baptized me, as it may be, that makes me a great person as well. That's how they boasted. Or Paul, Paul's a hero to the faith. So when Paul came into town and recruited me to the faith of Jesus Christ and blessed me, I am, by association, great like Paul. What nonsense. What nonsense. That's fleshly, worldly thinking, Paul says. 
And he says it's evidence of immaturity, immaturity in the faith, because it shows us still thinking the way the world thinks and not having graduated and moved on to spiritual understanding. So Paul asks, what is Apollos's worth? That's what he's really asking. What is Apollos worth or how should a person evaluate Paul's importance in this situation? How does God see these men? That's really the question. How does God see them? And Paul answers the question with great humility, I might add. He says, we were merely servants through whom God brought faith to you and to the church. The Lord gave the opportunity for belief, Paul says. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Apollos that made belief possible. It wasn't those men that made the faith appear in Corinth. It was God, according to Paul. But he did it through the service of those men. If you can imagine a different circumstance, you get the point, I think, even more clearly. Imagine that you were awarded a great sum of money by an amazingly wealthy businessman, a billionaire, and he's going to give you a huge sum of money. But when the day came for the money to come to you, the man, the rich man, sends it to you by way of a courier who comes to your door with a check and hands you the check. Now, how much significance do you assign to the courier in that transaction? For example, do you make a point of telling everyone you meet that the courier made you rich? He played a small role. He delivered the money. But of course, he was not the one who made you rich. In fact, do you even notice his name? No, you're too busy looking at the check with all the zeros on it. Paul says he and Apollos are like that courier in the sense that they were merely men called by God and they were following orders to bring a message that they had been given by God. And Paul uses the analogy of a farmer to explain his role. He says he came into Corinth planting. He planted the gospel like a man might plant a seed. And in the case of the seed, you know, the word of God is compared to a seed in Scripture. So it's a great analogy. He says, like a farmer bringing the seed, bringing the word of God, Paul came to town and planted it in the ground. And then it blossomed into faith. Later, God sends another man, Apollos. And this time Apollos comes in and he waters and watering by analogy is simply the process of teaching, of encouraging, of developing what had already been planted so that it would grow stronger. That's Apollos' role. But in both cases, Paul says God caused the growth. Don't misunderstand the cause and effect relationship. Paul showed up. He delivered a message. People responded. And from a human point of view, if you had been watching, you might have said, look what Paul did. But that's a fleshly, uninformed, immature understanding. By the word of God, we know it was deeper than that. God worked through the service of a man to cause something to happen. In other words, if God had not been included in that equation, Paul would have been 100 percent unsuccessful. He would have done exactly the same things and had zero results without God. If we could have been transported back in time in Corinth and watched Paul and watched Apollos, what would we have seen? Well, we would have seen them working. We would have seen them putting forth great effort. From the testimony of Scripture, we know that Paul was tireless in arguing the points of Scripture, first in the synagogue, then in the streets to Gentiles. We can assume that Apollos, from what little we know of him, would have been patiently instructing and explaining and going back to the Old Testament and making comparisons and showing how Christ is the man who fulfilled everything the word of God said would come. We would see, by all appearances, two men working their rear ends off to advance the gospel. That's what we would see. And that's what the Corinthian church saw. But they misunderstood what they saw. 
Paul's tireless preaching was not the cause of the church emerging out of nothing. Apollos' patient exposition didn't persuade people to grow in the faith. The growth was supernatural. The planting was supernatural. The whole result is God's work through these men. They thought they were watching two men start the church. When scripture says they were watching God start the church through two servants. So it stands to reason that had these men, Paul and Apollos, never shown up to Corinth in the first place, others would have been sent. The message would have come some other way. The church still would have arrived. It would have come under whatever way God provided apart from these men. These men are not the key. They're just the servants. Paul says, I and Apollos were not anything. Paul does not mean that he and Apollos were worthless. He doesn't mean that they were unimportant. He means that with respect to the result, they were not anything. That the result had no relationship to them. In that sense, they were not anything. But they are still important to the process because they obeyed the call of God. And that's how Paul ends in verse 7. He says, God deserves all the credit. Now, we know Paul taught back in chapter 2 that the message of the gospel is foolishness to natural men. If I walk up to an unbeliever and I say, here's the gospel, here's how you go to heaven, believe A, B, C, D. No human being will ever agree with that statement because it's designed to be foolish to the hearing of a human being who's not being saved by the power of God. So that when someone does hear it and does believe, all of us then know that God just did a work in that person's life because it wasn't by their flesh that they agreed with that message. Paul says it was designed to sound foolish so that it only reflects on him. When they believe. So that would have to mean that when Paul says, I am not anything and Apollos is not anything, he's saying, I know that if it weren't for God, my efforts would have arrived at nothing because they depend on God. It's like the courier bringing the check. If it were not for the wealth of that businessman, that courier could not have made you wealthy, right? And without the power of God, Paul and Apollos could not have made anyone a Christian. That's a powerful spiritual truth. The truth that God alone saves, but he works through the service of men and women like you and me. That is powerful spiritual wisdom. Where before you and I may have assumed that we were the ones with the power to save men and women. We were the ones who had the power to change hearts. Now, by the word of God, we understand that only God does that work. Where before you might have condemned yourself or someone else for not working hard enough to save an unbelieving friend or an unbelieving family member. Now you hear the word of God. You understand that that outcome was never dependent on you. So you don't receive blame for their hardened hearts. But on the other hand, we might have in the past pointed to our inabilities, our lack of skill, our lack of ability to preach or to explain the gospel and use that as an excuse to sit and not evangelize when we have an opportunity. And now, by the word of God, you know that your ability is not the key ingredient and therefore it is not an excuse for doing nothing. And in the past, if we ever hesitated to share our faith with a friend or a family member because the odds of success are so low, I mean, I don't think I've ever had anybody agree with the gospel when I have presented it. So why bother now? Well, now you know by the word of God that at any moment, God may choose to show up in our words by his power and bring saving faith because that response lies completely in his control. So we are without excuse for inactivity. Whatever's happened in the past is irrelevant. You could have presented the gospel a hundred times and had a hundred yeses or a hundred noes that says nothing about what's going to happen on the hundred and first time because it's in God's power alone. This truth 
cuts both ways. It takes away our opportunity to boast in any success in the work of our ministry, but it also removes any excuse for not trying. The bad news, you have zero power to save anyone. The good news, God has all the power in the universe and he has said he is prepared to work through you according to his will. Either I'm in control or God's in control. I'd much rather have God in control of this process because he's got a lot more power than I do. Now, some have come to this truth and they've only come away with half an understanding. Men have heard that God owns the outcome of salvation whenever the gospel is presented. And they have concluded from that sometimes that that means they have no reason to get involved in the process. Personal ministry loses its attraction to some when they find out that faith only arrives by God's power, not by their personal efforts. And so, like a pouting child, they refuse to serve God at all, since, after all, it doesn't depend on me, it's all up to God. This is just another form of spiritual immaturity. If boasting in God's work is one form of spiritual maturity, then discounting the importance of us joining in that work is just another form of spiritual immaturity. Both views are evidence that we have not understood the spiritual importance of advancing the gospel. So now Paul takes the moment to explain why we are supposed to work hard in presenting the gospel or in any form of ministry, even knowing that it lies entirely in God's power for the success to materialize. Why do I work with God then? What's in it for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 8. Now, Paul says, he who plants... And he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. If we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Paul says the one who plants Going back to his analogy again of the farmer, the one who plants and the one who waters, he says, are one. And what he means by this is they are equal. They are one. They are equal in their opportunity and in their importance. Because God drives the outcome. No man or woman is more or less important than any other member of the body of Christ in terms of outcome. We all have equal opportunity to participate with the Lord. And therefore, we all, Paul says, have equal opportunity to be rewarded for that work. Now, notice Paul raises the prospect of God rewarding us here. That should have been the first thing to catch your attention there at the end of verse eight. He says every worker referring to those who serve God will receive a reward according to his or her labor. Now, laboring in this context refers to serving God in the work of planting and growing the church. But that's a broad category. I don't want you to think too narrowly here. When you think of church in this sense, the way we practice it today in so many places, it really narrows this conversation too much. What is the church? It's not this building, as you all know. It is the collected body of Christ anywhere in the world. So to the extent that the body of Christ is the church, then any work we do to plant, that is to extend it, to bring new people into it, or to grow it as Apollos, watering, growing, that is to edify and strengthen it, in any sense, you fall under the umbrella of what Paul's talking about here. So does that mean a pastoral role? Well, it includes a pastoral role, certainly, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't just mean formal positions. It means ministry with a capital M. Whatever the body of Christ does to advance the kingdom, 
The issue isn't whether we are hard workers in our job or in our school or in our homes, that we are industrious, that we are hardworking people. The issue is how well we labor in ministry specifically, according to what the Lord gives us to serve him in in the days we live on earth. And I think that a lot of Christians are surprised to learn that there are rewards on the table for those who serve the Lord. I think to some, the concept that their Father in Heaven is prepared to give you a reward seems incompatible with love or with grace. It almost sounds like it's sullying the relationship a little bit. I've heard some question whether it's even proper to serve God with the expectation that He's going to reward. Shouldn't we just serve Him because He saved us and He loves us and He died for us? Well, yes, that's certainly enough reason all by itself. But God is so good that he's prepared to reward us for that faithful service. The New Testament teaches about this repeatedly. For example, Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Luke 6.35, Jesus says this, Love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. John writes in his second letter, Second John, verse 8, he says, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. I mean, I've just picked three examples. Throughout the New Testament, we hear of the expectation for good service leading to heavenly reward. Think about all the parables Jesus teaching about slaves left to work while their master has gone. And then at some point, the master returns. And what is the prospect for the slave who has done a good job while the master's been away? The scriptures tell us that when the work is evaluated, there's a reward for the good and faithful slave. But on the other hand, the slave that has not served their master well gains nothing. Matthew 24, 44, Jesus says this, For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Jesus says he expects us to serve him faithfully, And to do a lot with what we've been given. It's not our achievement that he judges. It's our faithfulness that he judges. He isn't asking us necessarily to build great things. He doesn't demand that we travel great distances, influence millions and millions of people. If you can, that's great. But that's not the standard. The goal is to be faithful with what he's given us. With what opportunities and what gifts. Jesus makes the assignment and then we pass the test. Paul explains that the judgment criteria the Lord uses when he comes to test our work is a very certain one. And to help us understand this process of judging, Paul uses the analogy of construction workers building a construction project or a building, endeavoring together to construct a building. He says in verse nine, think of us all as construction workers and the building we are constructing in real terms is the body of Christ, the church. Paul says it is God's building. And then the first thing to understand about our coming test 
is that when we're being tested, it will be on how well we participated in the construction project of building the church. And what Paul means, of course, is in things like recruiting new believers or serving them as they participate in the body of Christ. You understand you can't be expected to be rewarded for just any work. It's the work that God gives us for the benefit of the kingdom. And that's an easy detail to overlook. And if you miss it, you miss out entirely on the opportunity for reward. We aren't going to be rewarded simply for hard work at our job. We're not going to be rewarded simply for being a good student in school. We're not going to be rewarded for our sports achievements, for our hobbies, or any other endeavors that fill our day. Those things in and of themselves are not the source of reward. Only if those things eventually become opportunities to advance the kingdom in the sense of the church and its purpose on earth. Only then do they contribute to our opportunity for reward. So, for example, if we prosper at our job, earn a lot of money and then perhaps take some of what we've earned and turn it to the glory of the kingdom in some fashion, then we might say that our industriousness and our hard work produced opportunity for reward in the way we turned it to the needs of the kingdom. Or if our studies at school make us an especially accomplished doctor or nurse or some other profession and we use those skills on the mission field or we use them to treat others in the body of Christ, we volunteer our time. You see the point, right? What we know and what we achieve in this life needs to be turned to the purpose of the gospel. It is not enough for us to simply be good citizens of America and in our job and in our school. Just doing the thing that's natural doesn't gain you any credit. And what's natural? To be a good student, to work hard at work. What's natural? To score all the goals on your soccer team. Those are great achievements. They mean zero for the kingdom by themselves. We can't take satisfaction in that stuff. Only if those things eventually become opportunities to advance the kingdom. Notice Paul says in verse 10, our working is according to the grace God has given us. What we do in service to God is a work appointed to us by God According to his grace, it is a grace even just to have the opportunity to serve God. That alone is grace. And you can see the variety in the body of Christ. To some Christians, Jesus gives, quote, greater grace. And by that, I mean greater opportunities to have a greater impact on the kingdom. You might think of men like the Apostle Paul himself. You might think of Augustine. You might think of Luther, you might think of Tyndall, you might think of Bonhoeffer, you might think of Billy Graham, you might think of many others who have a disproportionate opportunity. They were put into circumstances and times in the world where they could have great impact for the sake of the gospel, and we're still talking about them today. They could make a tremendous impact because of how God gave them grace to do so. But with that came greater expectations on these men. Wouldn't you agree? They could do no less. If Billy Graham hadn't done what Billy Graham had done, he'd be judged according to what he could do. And that's one of the most essential aspects of this judgment you and I both have to keep in mind. The judgment isn't merely of what we have done. The judgment is what we could have done. The judgment is what we did and what we didn't do with what we were given. For every Paul or for every Luther or for every Graham, there are millions of Christians who work in obscurity to serve the Lord. But as Paul said, we are all one in this respect. We are all equally able to please him and equally able to earn reward. So that poor farmer faithfully serving the Lord, working in the fields while raising his family to fear God can be rewarded equally with the Apostle Paul based on what he's been given by grace. That young missionary struggling to teach the Bible to a handful of believers in a remote village can still 
received the same praise as Luther. And a single Christian mother working nights to feed her children while praising Jesus for her hope in the resurrection may please her master every bit as much as Billy Graham. Just as the thief crucified next to Jesus used the last hours of his life to praise the Lord on the one hand and to testify to another sinner concerning the truth of the gospel, he pleased the Lord with the little bit of opportunity he had as any of us can do with what we have. You see, it's judged according to the grace we have been given. What I suspect, however, is that we all think ourselves far less able and with far less opportunity than is actually true from God's point of view. I suspect that knowing that we are judged according to the opportunities we've been given may lead us inappropriately to think ourselves with less opportunity and less ability than God thinks. To grade ourselves on the curve when God will not. So the question is, given what we've received, what are we making of it? If we can be rewarded for faithful service, then it stands to reason that we can also suffer loss for faithless service. Paul makes that very point in another letter to the same church in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says this to the church. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. And then Paul adds this. He says, whether good or bad, whether good or bad, Paul says, when the time comes for our service to be assessed, Christ will consider all that we do in the body. And in the body simply refers to the time in our life prior to our resurrection. That is this age now that we live in, in this body, in this life while we await our death. What do we do in that time? At the judgment, at the time when we're tested, Jesus will repay you according to what you've done, good or bad. If we have done good things, that is, if we have served God to the utmost of our ability within the grace he gave us, within the walk of life he placed us in, within the station of life he gave us, if we've done what he asked us to do and done it faithfully, then we can expect him to reward us. But if we do bad things, which in this context does not mean sin, that's been covered by Christ's blood on the cross. We are not talking about a judgment for the question of whether we enter heaven. This is not a judgment that asks, are you good enough to get in? We already know the answer to that. The answer is no. (laughs) We are not good enough to get into heaven. Thankfully, Christ's death on the cross takes care of that for us. And by faith, by faith alone, we enter heaven. This is a question for those who have entered heaven. What reward will you find waiting there? The reward is dependent on your service. And that service can be good or bad. And bad service then would have to mean not living up to the opportunities that God has placed in front of us. Saying no to the mission opportunity. Saying no to the giving opportunity. Saying no to the teaching opportunity. Saying no to the service opportunity. Or taking those opportunities on and shrinking back for them. Giving up too soon. Not following through. Not keeping our word. Not being faithful. Letting someone down. Most of all, Christ. Paul explains further in 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verses 11 through 15. He says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. 
In verse 11, Paul says, every good work we set out to accomplish must begin with the right foundation. And the foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of our work. It's the foundation of the church. If our work does not begin with the advancement of the gospel, and I don't mean the social gospel. I don't mean a prosperity gospel. I don't mean any of those other false gospels that say the church is about feeding people, clothing people, doing nice things in the community, having nice seminars on how to keep your bills straight. All of that might be good and helpful to the body, and it might be something we can use to advance the gospel, but it is not the gospel. The gospel is that you are a sinner without the saving work of Christ on the cross. You have no hope for heaven, but by his blood, you can be cleansed of your sin. And if you have faith in that sacrifice on your behalf, God will welcome you into heaven because his son was righteous, not because you were. That's the foundation of what we do. If our work is not based on that and designed to further that, it's not a work that God has any purpose in. If you feed people, it's so that you might reach them with the gospel. If you clothe people, it's so that you might reach them with the gospel. If you do any good work, it's so that people might be saved, because sooner or later that body you're feeding and clothing goes in the grave. The question is, what is their soul going to do after that? So we don't begin our work for Christ on any other foundation than the mission to spread the truth of Jesus and Jesus crucified. Now, from there, we're in a position to earn reward. Paul says we can build on top of that foundation in one of two ways. We can build a foundation using valuable materials, and he uses examples, gold, silver, valuable jewels. Obviously, those are not conventional building materials, at least not in my house. But the point of them is twofold. They're precious and they're durable. They're precious and they're durable. Paul compares those materials to good works that please the Lord. They are pleasing in the sense they are valuable to the Lord. And they are durable in the sense that they have eternal consequences. They cause eternally good things to happen. When I present the gospel and someone's saved, that's an eternal, durable work. When I feed their body without the gospel, the food goes in, it comes out the other end, and there's nothing durable about that. Durable, valuable, that's what we want. On the other hand, we can take that foundation and metaphorically we can build a structure using things like wood and hay and straw. And those things, of course, are elements with no inherent value or little inherent value. And they are certainly not durable. Paul says in verse 13, then they will be subjected to a test. And in a day to come, he says, our work will become evident. Now, the day that he's talking about here is a day of judgment that elsewhere in Scripture we call the judgment seat of Christ. It is a moment of judgment that only believers face. Unbelievers will never face this moment. Remember, this is a moment in which the father greets his children with the prospect of reward. And the Bible says that without faith, you are not God's child. You are a child of the enemy. You are a child of the devil, according to Scripture. So we're not talking about the judgment of all men. We're talking about the judgment for believers. And that day is the day we die. Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 9:27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. The moment of judgment is at the death of the person. So in that day when we die, we will stand before the Lord if we are a believer in Jesus Christ. And as a believer standing before the Lord, our work it says will become evident. The word in Greek for evident is phaneros and it's literally the word for obvious. So he's saying, your work, my work, when we stand before Christ, it will become obvious. Somehow, in ways we don't understand, the Lord is going to make obvious to him and to us and to anyone else who might be there, I guess, what we did, whether good or bad. All the games we play today, 
All the lies we like to tell ourselves about when we're good and when we're bad, all of that stuff's gone because it's obvious. In the place of games and lies and excuses will be the truth. That's what a test is for, right? To reveal the truth. Paul compares this test to fire. I don't know that there's literally going to be a fire present. He's been using an analogy through this entire discourse. It seems to me that this is another piece in the analogy. He's used wood and straw, combustible materials, and he's used non-combustible materials, and then he uses fire to sort of illustrate what's going to happen. I don't expect there to be real fire. I do expect there to be a real test. And that fire, Paul says, will Burn away worthless things, but leave behind only the sturdy, valuable things. You know, fire is a common tool for testing, particularly in talking metallurgy, when you're trying to purify metals. You burn away impurities. You're left with the pure things. That's the the sense here. Paul says in verse 14 that if our work stands up to Christ's scrutiny, we will receive a reward because he is a righteous judge. He's a good father who knows how to give his children good gifts. So we should expect a reward. In fact, I'm here to tell you right now, you should expect a reward beyond anything you can possibly imagine. I mean, would we really expect to enter into the heavenly realm at the disposal of our Father and Christ himself and to receive a reward that disappoints us? Can you imagine such an outcome? That you could actually have things you reward yourself with here that are greater than what God's prepared to reward us with? I can't imagine the possibility. And yet... Many are working very hard every day of their lives to build up a treasure here on earth of things that are causing them to sacrifice those greater things. Now, for some, this judgment will not go well. Paul says in verse 15 that if a man comes into that moment without a proper legacy of service to Christ, then all that he brings will be burned up. This man, whoever he is or woman, may have been a Christian all their life. They may have attended church most of the time anyway. They may have prayed when they thought about it. They may have given a few bucks in the plate when it was passed around. They may have done a lot of wonderful little things along their life as a Christian. They may have built a Fortune 500 company. They may have a fortune of their own in the bank. They may have been beloved by millions. They may be famous in their own time. Whatever he did, the test of his life reveals a wasted opportunity. And so the fire of Christ's judgment consumes everything that this person accomplished because they didn't work on things that mattered to Christ and the kingdom. Paul says that man fails his test. So what happens to him? Well, praise the Lord, his entrance into the kingdom is not at risk. Paul says he comes through, meaning he, by his faith, is still saved. He isn't left behind. He isn't shut out. He isn't sent away. He isn't rejected. He is saved. But Paul adds that important phrase. He comes through as someone walking through fire. You want to imagine a burning fire and a man on one side of it preparing to walk through. And he's fully clothed. And he's carrying every possession he can hold in his hands. And he walks into the fire. And as he comes out the other side, he's naked and he's got nothing in his hands. That's the image that Paul is trying to convey to us as we go through this test with nothing to show. Empty handed. Friends, let's be working today for a better outcome on that future day. Consider this the moment that your teacher told you there will be a test next week. You've been given your warning. You've got the time required to get ready. You know the test is coming, and you know if you don't prepare, the result won't be favorable. Only in this case, it's not a teacher talking. It's the Lord through his word. And this isn't a test that's going to be postponed. This isn't a test in which at the end the teacher's going to say, you know what, it's open book after all. Or forget it, we're just going to average all your previous scores. This isn't something in which there's going to be a change in the plan. It's coming, and it's as sure as your own death. And the result 
will last a thousand years, Scripture says. Our rewards or our lack thereof will be ours to enjoy or not for the thousand-year kingdom. So let's stimulate each other for as long as today is called today to do the good works God has called us to do so that when we are all there together, none of us will look one to another and wish we had done more for their sake to encourage them in good works. For we will have an awfully long time to think about it. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, a test, Father, is an opportunity to evaluate in truth our performance according to your standards. Your standards, Father, are so much higher than ours. But so is your power and so is your imagination, so is your wisdom. Since those things, Father, are the things that lead us to success, then what is holding us back? I pray, Father, that what we've learned through the word this morning would give us greater reason to consider our time and our priorities, to ask hard questions of ourselves and of those we love. I pray, Father, you would give us in the spirit a wisdom to answer them properly. I pray that we would not be held back by fear. We would not be held back by concerns of wealth or health or image. I pray, Father, that we would only be concerned with a test that is coming and how we will be evaluated when we stand for it. I pray, Father, that you would let us be a church that lives what we believe and shows others the truth in love, calls others to believe so that we may help them into the same walk that you've given us a chance to take. And then through all of this work, we pray we please you, Father. We pray that in the day that this small community of believers stands before you, all of us join together, that we can look amongst one another and we can say we were conscientious for the needs of one another. We thought about this day and planned for it. Let us not leave any behind, Father. And let us grow our numbers. You do that work, Father. We know that. You say it in your word. But you also ask us to serve you. Let us have energy and heart to serve. And then, Father, give us a reward through that service, both now in results that we can see and in the future, Father, in that reward that awaits us in the kingdom. We thank you. We ask, Father, you bring us back to continue this study next week. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.